Okay, folks, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here for our, our week number two of our Feb term. As you can see on the screen uh, before you, this, this is our schedule for the month of February. And we're so delighted that you all are here to combine forces and to focus on a topic that we think is uh, very important for the life of our, our church family. Uh, for those of you who weren't here for last week, uh, I'm going to give you a quick re recap. We had about 250 adults in here last week, which was wonderful. We knew it was wonderful because all the food was gone and all the coffee was consumed. So that's how we could come up with that very good metric of 250 people. So, uh, yeah, what we're doing is uh, what Corey did last week was just to remind us why we're doing this series and the importance of neighboring well. Uh, Jay Pathak, who is our guest speaker last week, he's the author of the book, The Art of Neighboring, and we have some of those books in the back if you would like to purchase a copy uh, for $10. We're not making any money on it. We just want to get that book into your hand. And um, this is, we have a recording, by the way, on our website if you want to hear the full talk, but this is the, uh, uh, the Reader's Digest version. He reminded us of the great commandment, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your actual neighbor as yourself. He uh, reminded us that our next-door neighbor is not a metaphorical neighbor, but it's an actual neighbor. And so he really wanted us to engage at, what I think he called it a preschool level of actually loving your next-door neighbor. That's kind of the low bar, and the high bar is loving your neighbor in Africa. And then he invited us to look at uh, what he called the um, neighboring map, which is to start praying for the eight neighbors in your, uh, directly near you in your neighborhood. And uh, he invited us to kind of pr identify those names, to pray, and, and just be obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And he shared lots of stories and examples with wit and humor. So that's what happened last Sunday. All right, so this week we're fortunate to have Justin Early. Uh, Justin is a member of Third and is married to Lauren. Um, they served together overseas in missions work before moving back here to Richmond. They have three boys under the age of five. So in his spare time, <laughs> he actually works as an attorney at McGuire Works at Woods. Woods, excuse me. He uh, in. in in addition to that, you know, they decided to move. You know, that's always really smart, Lauren, to move, you know, three boys and all that good stuff. And he's also writing a book, you know, so this guy has obviously plenty of margin, and we need to learn more from Justin on how he can do that. So the name of this book is called The Common Rule, and his effort is to offer the hope and joy that he's found to the epidemic of anxiety, depression, and overwork of so many well-intentioned people. He is advocating a communal way of forming one's life in the love of God and neighbor amidst a culture beset by individualism and consumerism. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be together to learn from you through Justin and through each other. We pray that you would guide our hearts and minds towards you and towards our neighbor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tom. I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, when I first came to third a couple years ago, it was around the time of a February term, and my life was actually really changed by it. At that time, I had a 
1975 BMW vintage motorcycle, dream bike. And the February term convinced me to sell it. Which, yeah, right? <laughs> so big life change happens in this room every February. That, that story is for another time. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about neighboring as mission in a secular age. You guys, if you did not hear Jay's talk last week, should go back and listen to it. It was not only great, he's really funny. Um, disclaimer, I'm not. I, that, that's like the only funny thing I'll say. I'm good at being serious. Don't expect me to be as funny as him. Uh, I want to talk to you about neighboring as mission in a secular age because we as a church are flipping ourselves inside out and we think it's biblical. All right, so if you see this tagline, the, the topic this morning that was given to me was the neighboring the heart of third church parish life. You see the flip, the, most, the deepest thing inside of us, our heart is outward for our neighbor. Um, this is something that we want to do together, flip ourselves inside out. And I want to sort of dig us into thinking about neighboring as actually what we as a missionary people do here in American culture, okay? And I want to start with this. It's a uh, painting that you have definitely seen before uh, by Vincent Van Gogh. So you've seen this, I know. It's called Starry Night. Um, but you may not know about what, what the life behind this painting. And I want to introduce you to Vincent Van Gogh for a minute. So Vincent Van Gogh was um, actually a, a deeply troubled man. And he was troubled by this longing for the divine that he could never find satisfaction in. So he grew up as the son of a pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church, and he hated, as a teenager, he hated his father's belief. He was the oldest of six kids. They would have bitter arguments over faith. But when he left the house, he actually went on to try to become a pastor himself. And he tried to go to seminary, and he miserably failed at the academic part of it. And um, failing at that, he then tried to become an evangelist, and he lived with coal miners and peasants in poverty, trying to do evangelism to them. Uh, and that's somewhere in there is when he lost his faith. And when he was, it wasn't until he was 27 that his older brother found these sketches that he was doing of the peasants. And he said, my goodness, something is going on here. You should paint. And he did. And at the age of 27, he found his true calling in painting. And he painted works such as this. Now, you may have never noticed before, but when you look at this landscape, um, and it is a historical landscape. If you were to go and look at there, that church is not there. You see that church in the middle of the painting? Uh, the artist Mako Fujimura says, if, if you take that church out of the painting, it structurally falls apart from an, from an art, art, artist's painter-to-painter perspective. Van Gogh inserted that church in there. It's a Dutch Reformed church that didn't belong in the landscape. And you'll notice something about it. You see how all these lights are on in the valley? The church is dark, and it was like for Vincent that the, the light in the church had gone out and it floated up into these stars that he so loved to paint. Right before he committed suicide, he wrote in a letter to his brother that when I have the need of, dare I say the word, religion, I go out and I paint the stars. See, Van Gogh lived with this terrible skepticism. He couldn't bring himself to really believe but he lived at the same time with this terrible longing. He couldn't shake the longing for the divine. And what I want to say to us this morning is that in a secular age, in our secular neighborhoods, our neighbors are more Van Gogh-like than ever. 
They are racked by their doubt and their skepticism of our religious claims, but they are also racked by their desire to find the light. And I want to say that neighboring as a way of mission means to be a church that turns the lights back on. So that when our neighbors look out into the world longing to see the light, they might see us. Now, I have an argument to bring to you this morning. I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm also a husband and a human being. <laughs> I like arguing. But this is, I, there is a logical progression to what I want to tell you this morning. And, and I'm just going to summarize it really briefly for you. Neighboring as mission, okay? I want to convince you that your fundamental identity is a missional identity. It's not that some of us are sent, it's that all of us are sent. And if that's true, we have to think about, well, who are we sent to? And we will look around right here in our homeland and find that where we are is a secular age. And we have to think about, well, what does it mean to go to that kind of neighbor? And then I'm going to argue, and I will promise I will get practical at the end here, I'm going to argue that the language they speak is a language of practice. They might be deaf to the faith claims put in words, but they, like Vincent, are longing for the light. And I want to say that the way we can be missional to our neighbors in a secular age is in our parish groups to light up the night with these practices of light. And I'm going to go through three practices that I think can characterize our parish groups. Um, so that's my argument now I'm going to try to tell it to you in stories. Mission. Why are we all missionaries? I used to be a missionary. Tom told you so much. And I'm still a missionary. Did you hear what I just did? I used to be a missionary. When I was on the way back from China, this is now seven years ago, I uh, had felt the call of God to come and work missionally in America as a corporate lawyer. Some of you are like, that's not possible. <laughs> I think it is. I told, I debriefed a church, a faithful supporting church of mine, and told them what I was, my plan was. And afterwards, this lady comes up to me, and she says, quietly off to the side and so earnestly, Justin, I know that we need more missionaries, but I am not sure that we need more lawyers. <laughs> and uh, I was stunned. I had no idea what to say. And if you know me, you've probably heard this story before, because I've really lived my life since then trying to make sense of the sense and the nonsense in that statement. The nonsense, the, the incorrect part being, no, no, I was coming home to be a missionary in a different context. And yet, when she says that, you and I both intuitively get exactly what she means, we usually don't think like that. We know we don't think like that. You don't think like that. Even I say, I used to be a missionary. But I want to say what the Bible says to us is that we are. We are a sent people. It's not other people who are missionaries. It is every believer who is. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, so we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you to go to and read this whole passage, and you ought to, Paul is talking about the fundamental shift that happens to us when he who had no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we could have the righteousness of God, the great exchange, the great flip that we can do nothing about except accept. Paul is saying that your fundamental identity because it's so important that this whole idea of parish life 
missional. It, it is rooted in what God has done for us in the gospel. When we are flipped from our sin to righteousness, Paul says, therefore, now we are ambassadors. And what's an ambassador, right? Someone who's sent. Someone who doesn't really belong where they are. They're sent there. They're not from there. They're in exile there. If you, if you pay attention to the story of the Bible in this framework, you'll see it everywhere. All right, ever since Adam and Eve are sent east of Eden, the people of God are a strange, foreign, exilic, wandering, sojourning people. This is why you see the Israelites traveling through the Old Testament, trying to get to the presence of God. This is why when you see Christ, he comes as uh, born in a different town, from a town nobody likes, fleeing borders, nowhere to lay his head. He is a stranger. He doesn't have a home here. He's sent here. And this is why when we get to the book of Hebrews, this, is, this passage has just changed my life over the past year and a half, just reading it over and over. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the faithful. And he says, these are the people who, having a knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, that is where they were, where they were born, their real home, quote unquote, they would have had an opportunity to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I am starting with this idea trying to shake us loose from our domestication, our assimilation, our, our, our comfort that is too comfortable in our own land, because it's not until we get that we don't really fit in here that we will finally be the ambassadors we're supposed to be. And here's how I would put it. And here's, because I want to pin it onto parish life. When we are Americans before we're Christians, or substitute in whatever you want, when we're Virginians before we're Christians, when we're this or that neighborhood before we're Christians. The neighbors who disagree with us are our enemies. But when we are Christians first, the neighbors, well, no wonder they disagree with us. We're strange. We don't fit in here. That's why we're here. We're sent to them. Of course they don't agree with us. You see, when, when we're our, our local identity first, people who don't act, think, desire, and believe like this are the ones we need to get out of the way because they're interrupting our culture, they're interrupting the way of life we want, they're interrupting our comfort. But when we know that we're an exilic people sent here to where we were born by God, well, we expect it. And we shift from, I need to argue with these people, to... I am sent to be with these people. Let me tell you about a time that I got this completely wrong. I am in DC. It is my first year of law school. And I am at a backyard party. You guys are going to love this. Picture a row house in DC, backyard. There's great string lights, tons of craft beer, lots of young professionals. I'm in a group talking, and there is couple people who live in a religious-ish house, and they're doing nonprofit-ish work, and they really have no personal faith. And I don't say this as a criticism. I say this as a description. These people were my friends. They did good things. They had no sense of what I would call orthodoxy. They were my friends. Again, I'm not criticizing them. 
I was also in this circle was this wonderful friend, and she's Jewish, and she's such a deep personal faith. Um, but her practice of Judaism is fascinating. She loved it when I cooked her lobster and pork chops. She wanted to be kosher at some day. She's, she's so funny, too. She, she, she had plans to raise her kids in a kosher household someday, just not now. And her, her Ghanaian fiancé, who was American-born but of Ghanaian descent, was ca- Catholic but had converted into her ver- version of Judaism by a female rabbi so that they could get married. And then there's this guy who just got back from studying existentialism in France, and he's working on his PhD. All right, I am in, like, the hotbed of American pluralism. Okay, that, that's what I want to com- communicate to you. And it was a great party. It's a great party. Except this one guy is picking on me. The PhD guy's picking on me. He's saying he didn't really like what I was doing in China. And he's saying, you know, you really shouldn't convince people of what to believe. See what he's doing? He's convincing me that I shouldn't convince people. It was bothering me. And, and, he, and then he said, if you really think about it, I mean, there's no reason to believe any of this has coherence or meaning. I mean, come on. Like, think about where we actually came from, this chaotic Big Bang. We can't even be sure that our words have any meaning. And I said, Can, let me just interrupt you a second. Do you know your fly is down? <laughs> and he looked. And finding that it wasn't down, he looked back up. And I said, if none of this has any meaning and my words don't make sense, why'd you look and why do you care? <laughs> and, okay, and... Everybody around me did exactly what you did. They laughed, okay? And that conversation ended. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I soundly won an argument for which I profoundly regret. I sent him packing. He doesn't care. He never wanted to talk to me again. I embarrassed him, and by being right, I ended it. That had, as I think back about that, I, I think back on, on a, a, a person who wanted to be right, but who didn't care about being with, or who didn't care about actually saying, well, what is going to get this guy to pay attention? I, I share this with you because I want you to know I get that living amongst our neighbors in a secular age is difficult because it is difficult to live with people who think that we're stupid. That is hard. Like, I get it. I don't like when people look at me and say, your beliefs are not only stupid and wrong, but they might be wicked. Like, you, you might actually be vicious for believing this. I know, brothers and sisters, that that is hard. But when we talk about what it means to live in a secular age, I want, you to, I want to convince you that, that that pain may be real, but it is not the most important pain in a secular age. The most important pain is the pain of our neighbors who were living like Van Gogh did. So when you think of the secular, I'm sure you, like I, think of this neutral space where religion is carved out, okay? And, you know, that's a thing, but it's not the main thing. Uh, The main thing is that it's better put that we are now living alongside our neighbors in a world where the lights have been turned off. I am not promising that there is not still going to be and probably increasing a sense of where we live where we're not allowed and we're not supposed to talk about what we believe. What I'm saying is that our exclusion is nowhere near as important as our neighbor's confusion. So 
what do I mean when I say the world where the lights have been turned off? Well, think about this. Um, you can just look at the painting in the background. Think about this painting, right, and what Vincent was going through. There's, there's an, a term that I've learned recently from a scholar named Charles Taylor, who's a, a Catholic writing about what secularism is. And he's got a term called the imminent frame. And he says, what it means to live in a secular age, and this is true for you and it's true for our neighbors, it's true for me, is that we, tend to, we, we live now as if everything exists within the present material frame. So Van Gogh, when he couldn't find the light in the church, he looked up to the natural heavens. He painted the stars, the, the material world. It used to be our, our ancestors, when we were depressed, we thought, well, there must be something outside the frame. There must be spiritual attack. God must be teaching me something. Maybe it's demon possession. All right, now when we're depressed, we think, some, I need a pill. Maybe I need to sleep more. Maybe there's some trauma. And I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I'm just saying that's a different knee-jerk thought. We're looking in the frame. All right, it used to be when you're in love, you, uh, you thought, Cupid struck me with an arrow. Or, the stars are aligned. Uh, and, and now when you read uh, in popular psychology or neurology about love, it's like, well, you and me, like everybody else, desires to procreate and push the species along. Like, surprise, surprise. Which makes Romeo and Juliet a terrible story. Right? It completely loses that, oh, no, no, there's something else there. right? And so this is, this is the thing, that we look within the frame to explain everything. We have this terrible sense of doubt that anything could really be outside the frame. But then we go read Romeo and Juliet, and we're like, sure would be nice if there's something outside the frame. You, do you see the skepticism beside the longing and, and it, gets, it gets even deeper because if everything is explained by a rubric of doubt, like, right, this, if, if you do philosophy at all, and I don't, I'm just picking up what other people said, but if you, Descartes, right, you, you start with doubt. Let's doubt everything to find, try to find the truth. When you can doubt everything, surprise, surprise, you end up doubting the doubt. And this is what's fascinating. So look at what one of my favorite folk artists, and I think a sort of, modern-day prophet. He's, he is a um, vigilant atheist, but he's honest, too. This guy named Connor Ober sings, if you swear that there's no truth and who cares, how come you say it like you're right? Right? You're, you're starting to doubt the doubt. Like, why, why would I swear that there's no truth and care to be right about it? Why are you scared to dream of God when it's salvation that you want? And he's talking to himself here. You see the longing? He's admitting, I don't... I don't want to dream about that guy, but I want to be saved. Stars that clear have been dead for years, but the idea just lives on. He's looking at the sky, and he's saying, I see that beautiful light, just like Van Gogh did, and science tells me that thing is dead. That star burned out years ago. Nietzsche has told us God is dead. Why can't I stop looking? Why do I keep turning upward? The idea keeps living on. This is why um, Van Gogh turned his own lights off. This is why this song continues to go on about Connor Oberst's alcoholism. This is why David Foster Wallace, who so presciently understood, as, even as a non-believer, that we can't not worship. The only question is what? So pick carefully, because what you worship is going to eat you alive. This is why life ate him alive. This is why the novelist Julian Barnes can say, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. What you, well, you got to understand what I'm trying to show us 
is that our neighbors are living with a terrible sense of skepticism of all things and a terrible sense of longing. And we've got to be a church that turns the lights back on. This is a movement, you see, from there's something to argue with to there's a, uh, something to be with. These people know, Connor Ober is doubting the doubt. He knows this is not intellectually tenable. He doesn't care. Ken Meyer is one of my favorite Christian contemporary thinkers now, says, atheism isn't a conclusion, it's a mood. And anybody with a little bit of EQ, little bit of EQ, and if you're a husband, if you're a wife, you're a brother or sister, I struggle with this all the time, but you know it. You can't disrupt a mood with an argument. You know that. What do you disrupt it with? A presence. You gotta go there. This is why Christine Pohl writes that the most persuasive sermon we will ever preach is how we live together. Neighboring as a way of mission as a secular age is a way to disrupt the mood so that people might actually ask, can you give me a reason for the hope that is inside you? Maybe they'll actually ask for an argument. Maybe they'll actually be interested. Maybe they won't walk away like I sent that guy packing at the garden party. I want to talk to you about three practices of light, this way of incarnating the light into the frame as a way of evangelism in the secular age. And here's, the, I'm going to say the word habit of light or practices of light. Here's what I mean. I want you to think of a bonfire. I want you to think of, of a bonfire in, in a dark wilderness. You get by it, and what happens? You can finally see. Like, okay, I can see now. This is what actually is. This is what's around, right? But think of a bonfire in a dark wilderness. Where do you want to be? You want to be next to it. There is a truth revelation function of habits of light. They show that something else is real. It exists. But there's also just a warmth to it. You want to go there. You want to be there. And the, the practices of light that I want to talk to you about in the parish group context. And all of these will be true in your individual life. All these will, should be true in our church life. But I'm going to talk about them a little more specifically in our parish life. The table, friendship, and justice. So as Tom mentioned, uh, my wife and I made a horrible mistake of moving with three young children and a demanding job and a new book project. Actually, it actually wasn't a mistake. We, a house opened up two doors down from my brother, and we thought, this is a great long-term place to be. This is a terrible time to move. It was a really bad fall. But um, we're doing a little bit of renovation on a little, little bit of a budget, and my wife, we're just like knocking down a wall, and my wife comes to me um, in the middle of the process, and she's like, I want to buy this table. And I look at it, and I'm like, that's a beautiful table. It's a long teakwood dining table. It's not really expensive, but it happens to be 10% of our renovation budget. And I'm like, Lauren, this is 10% of our renovation budget. And she says, I want the, we, we need this table. This is the kind of table the family eats around for the rest of our life. And she convinces me. So we buy this table and spend a, a significant chunk of our renovation budget on it. And sure enough, it is now the centerpiece of our new room. It, it, it is like a center of gravity. It's, like this, it's actually changed the way we do family breakfasts. It's changed the way we sort of come together for family dinner. We're now inspired to actually light a candle at the table because it feels like we're together. It feels like we're eating together. It is, it, the house has started to revolve around this table. When I talk about a habit of light as the table, I'm talking about the table as the center of gravity for your parish life. Why is it a habit of light? You're probably thinking, Justin, um, everyone eats. This isn't an especially Christian thing. 
Well, I want you to think about where food is and where it's going in our culture. It's generally trending towards fuel or fashion, okay? Think of it, over 60% of Americans now regularly eat alone. Why? You know why. Because we're busy. We're so busy. Uh, There's a new venture capital-backed startup. They're actually not really a startup anymore because they're basically printing money. They're called Soylent. Has anybody heard of this? Some of you are nodding your heads, yes. Soylent proposes that you may drink this one bottle as not just a meal. All right, we've seen that before, like Slim Fast. We've seen that. The, the founders of Soylent do not eat. They just drink Soylent. It's, you should go look up. There's a New Yorker article on this. It's fascinating. They are claiming, let me read you their, um, something from the front page of their website. If you've ever skipped breakfast after rolling out of bed too late, if you've ever missed a lunch because of a busy schedule, if you've ever had a guilty conscience over a midnight microwave burrito, Soylent is made for you. <laughs> all, all I'm saying, and, and by the way, by the way, they have some pretty important claims about nutrition and environmentally friendly food that I do not mean to push off to the side. They actually, there's some parts of, I am pro-healthy eating, I am pro-sustainable eating, but... They're talking about a way of life, and they're making money off a way of life that is true. We don't revolve. Our center of gravity is not the table. Our center of gravity is a busy schedule. That, that's just what we do, all right? But, but to rearrange that, to as a, par- as a church, we're saying, we want you to have a meal once a week with your parish group. You're like, that's going to really change my schedule. That's, yeah, that's the point. We are trying to say this is a practice of light because people who do this kind of thing are doing what? They're orienting their lives around community. They are orienting their schedule around a new center of gravity, and that is each other. We're saying the schedule, the busyness, the frenetic pace, not the most important thing going on here. We've been made new by the gospel, and we've been made new together. We come and go at the table. Um, and I could talk about food as fashion, but you guys know this. Just open Instagram. You, you get what I'm talking about. We're talking about food moving towards formation around the center of gravity of the table. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but that's a communal practice. I mean, how is this evangelistic? Let me tell you. So it is true it's a communal practice. I think of our East End Parish group that we've been involved with, and we, the, the, the things that I think of when I think of my parish group are equally, if not more, things that people have said around the table than they are things that they've shared at prayer request time. So there is a true in like communal function. That's the point. But when you have the rhythm of the table at the center of your life, there is all of a sudden a natural orbit into which your neighbor can come or that you can be propelled towards them. So, for example, we wanted in our parish group to get to know the, um, these people who were living at a retirement home just two blocks down the street. And, we, and these are kind of the kind of people who, if we met them on the street, would have no idea what to say. Um, they're the kind of people you just kind of ignore. That's why we wanted to go to them, because they're just largely ignored and they're alone. And, and we thought, well, what are we going to do? Well, here's one thing we're really good at. Every week we plan a potluck. Every week we have a dinner together. Sometimes we do takeout. Sometimes we, we're like, you know what? We can do that. Let's do it with them. And we went from having no connection to these people to last fall having a monthly meal with these retirees and eating string beans and fried chicken. And like my kids are asking some 65-year-old woman about what Jackson Ward was like 
60 years ago, and it was incredible. Um, the table is a place where we will, we will have a natural rhythm in our parish to invite our neighbors into. That is, it is the beginning of mission. All right, so this is, a, this is the first practice of light. The second one, because this leads right into the second one, is friendship. What I mean by friendship, my working definition of friendship is vulnerability across time. It's the kind of person you say what actually is going on to over and over and over and over and over and over. Now, you know that we're made for friendship, right? You know that Adam was lonely in the Garden of Eden with God until God said, this isn't right, you need Eve. We were made for each other. We were made to be like the Trinity, to have a plurality of relationships in our life. But how much more do we need it now where in my generation, at least, we are pressured to curate our best lives on social media, and at the same time, we are entitled to a completely private life on the internet, and there's no one necessarily that really knows what's going on in our life. How much more do we need a friend who we can tell these secrets to? Now is an urgent time for friendship. Well, friendship is a practice of light because, again, by it, the gospel is lit up. What are you doing in friendship? Except saying, wow, you are really messed up, but I'm going to stick around anyway. That's what a friend is. What did Christ do to us except that you are messed up and I am coming for you anyway? When we demonstrate friendship, we light up the gospel in an embodied way. We act it out. You guys know it's hard to keep friends. It's hard to keep on like that. It's hard to forgive friends. It's hard to tell everything to friends. But when you do, it makes your life. And when you don't, it breaks your life. Um, but there's something else, right? There's a warm fire to friendships. Other people want in. When, so my best friend Steve is sitting here in the front row, and when we were in high school, we bonded over things like the drumline, um, youth group, skateboarding. You choose whether we were nerdy or not. But we, uh, a few years later, a guy named Matt joins the drumline, and we start to become friends with him. We have a lot of common interests. What we don't have in common is faith. Steve and I have our faith, and Matt didn't. And I am going to compress the story to a single sentence. I wish I could tell you all the gory details, the dark details, the embarrassing details, the funny details, the beautiful details. But as it turns out, Matt finally says, you guys are great and you're horrible. And the only way that I can try to figure this out is to try to figure out who is this God that you believe in. And Matt becomes baptized and believes because of our friendship and because of our failures. Matt was, uh, two nights ago, we had dinner with Matt. He's moving to Richmond now, 10 years later. Um, friendship drew him in to a place where he could see uh, the troubledness of our life and the beauty of life, and he wanted in on that gospel too. Friendship is the fire that we will create in our parish groups that will draw other people in. And I want you to think about this for a minute because it's a different way of thinking about church. Um, we, are, we often think about church as we use the relationships to push, funnel people towards events. If you were here last week, you heard a great story from Jay about like the, their megachurch was putting on a, a laser con, like music rock concert, and they were like, we need people to come. So they're calling all their friends, like, please come. It's like, 
why would you do that? You know, it's really funny. Listen to him tell it. What we're trying to do is we're trying to flip it, see? We're trying to say, yeah, we, we do events to push people to relationships. We want you to join a parish group. We want you to do it. Why? Because we want you to get funneled together. We want you to be intertwined, and we want you to have friendships in your neighborhoods where you're telling each other to the truth across time, and then what do you do except when you go to the park, you invite your neighbors to come along too. When you go out to eat, you invite them to come. You start to open up your friendship in this sort of open circle of the Trinity, right? God was fine without us. He was happy. But what did he do with that friendship? He opened it up and brought us in. Friendship is, not, is a practice that puts the gospel on display, and it's a fire that draws other people in. The last practice, before I want to give us some time for a question and answer, is the, a practice of justice. And when I say justice, I mean it as broad as I hope you hear it. I, I mean it in the James sense of uh, love the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the people who are cast out, the lonely, it is, it is just who God is, and so it is just who we should be, that rhythms of justice, rhythms of care for those in need are in our life. It's, it's a practice of light because, first of all, it shows who God is, all right? And here's what I want to say. If, if in our parish life, if in our church life, if, if in our individual lives, if we are living out a sermon and there is no evidence of care for the vulnerable, we are preaching about a false god. We are not talking about the Yahweh who created us. We are not talking about the Yahweh of the Old Testament who says, I am the father of the orphan. I am the caretaker of the widow. I care for the vulnerable. That is the God we worship so we must be reformed in his image, and our rhythms must reflect all of who he is, and this is part of who he is. We, when we do care for the vulnerable, and again, I'm talking broadly. I, I want you to think of the vulnerable as your lonely neighbor who is depressed and won't come out of his house and has, has been done harm by a way of life that leaves him alone and depressed in his house. I want you to think of him, and I want you to think of the kid living in the project who has been done harm by the culture that he lives in. I want you to think of both of them, and I want you to think of the vulnerable as the call. Like, they must, we must be going out to them and serving them. And why is this a, this is, it shows the gospel, but it also draws other people in. Think about this. Our secular neighbors are wrestling with something, and you know it, and they know it. How, how do you base your life on the claim of survival of the fittest? And then go back and say, sure does seem like we should care for the unfit. You know, how do you base your life around the claim of like chaos and the strong will survive, and then turn around and say, but we really should kind of like help the, 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 the weak. They know that this doesn't make sense. You know, it's, it's, again, it's not the winning argument to say, hello, you'll never get there. That doesn't matter. You know, what, what, you know what matters? You know what argument matters? If we come to them and we say, give us all your unfit. Give us all your immigrants. Give us all your unborn. Give us all the foster kids. Bring your poor here. We will care for them. That is the light. Because they will say, those people are crazy, 
and they believe in a dead guy who came alive that's supposed to come and save them. But I am sure glad they're in my neighborhood. And maybe I will, after all, take them up on that invitation to dinner because they care for the vulnerable. Whatever this ends up being in your parish group, it's going to look totally different depending on your neighborhood. But I want, to, I want us to have a rhythm of care for the vulnerable in our out weeks or in, the, in what we get involved in. Again, it might be going to the sad neighbor at the end of the block. It might be uh, getting involved with the school that you're near. It might be collecting money to send on medical missions. I, I mean it broadly in the way the fact of doing it is the light. There are so many different ways to do it. But we got to be a people who that is normal for. Because that's how we're going to light up the darkness. So let me try to tie this up and give you a second to ask questions. I'm saying that in a secular age, our neighbors are more Van Gogh-like than ever. Go back and just try for a second. Just think about what this man was like. Crazed on the verge of suicide, painting his longing for the divine in the stars. I'm trying to tell us that our neighbors are looking out into the valley and they're trying to look for a house with the lights on. And I, I, and I want us to see our parish missions as a way of living that flips the lights back on. I want you to think about the table in your parish groups as, as a house out in the wilderness with a table set where anybody who is lonely, anybody who is hungry, anybody who needs a friend, they can come in. I want you to think about your friendships that you're creating there as fires on the road, that all the cold people in this long cultural winter of loneliness can come in and join. And I want you to think of our service to the vulnerable as a way we just fan the flame so that there is a bright witness of doing justice in a dark and confused time. And, and I want to say that in doing these practices of light, we are going to reflect the light the one who came and said, I am the light of the world. And then looked at us and said, you are the light of the world. When we do this, we are going to light up the night so that the Van Goghs who live next to us will look in the valley. And even if they ignore the church with the lights on, they might look up to the heavens. And what would they see? Maybe us. Like St. Paul said, shining like stars in the sky in a dark generation. Just hanging there like the lights that Van Gogh is looking for. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we would be filled with the light of your gospel, that we might shine it to our neighbors. We do not, we do not, we, are, we need you because we don't want to be inward. We want to be outward. We want to bless because we have been blessed. We want to go to the unfit because we were unfit. And we need you. I pray that you would light up our lives together so that we might bring light to the neighbors in darkness. It's in your name. Amen. I did it. I left 10 minutes for questions. <laughs> that's, an, that's not a small achievement for me. Tom? Yeah, we got two microphones. Fritz is on one side and I'm on the other, so let's fire away. Got one here. Good morning. I'm so thankful to Good you. Good morning for your speech, your talk. Um, what goes through my mind, I think particularly about distant relatives, um, but neighbors, anybody that I don't think is a believer, the first thing that crosses me is self-centered fear 
that they're going to reject me, but there's also um, a certainty um, that what they're putting out on the outside, criticism, judgment, anger, you know, get your God away from me, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's always stopped me um, because this fear of, well, if you preach the gospel with words, they're going to, that's not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm hearing from you is they may project that, but they are people who are desperately in need down deep. And that the more I can give Jesus that fear, because it's real, and believe in the light that is in here by virtue of his presence, and trust that they really do, they really are searching and in pain, and that their pain is more important than my self-centered fear. Amen. Um, And that... In the Second Corinthians five, I don't know, seventeen or eighteen, he says, "We believe that because one one died for all, so that we all died to him, and so that we no right. longer have to live to and for ourselves, but to to and for him who died for us." And if I can just remember that, that's the life of freedom: is letting go of that. They don't like me. They're going to reject me. I'm going to ruin this. You know, me, 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 and just say, "Jesus, shine. Thy will be done. Be it unto me according to thy word." Amen. Wasn't a question. Sorry. No, but it was a good little homily. Could we get her up here next week? Thank you. Hi. Um, I was just curious. What are some practical tips that you could give for people with really, really busy schedules? Because it sounds like you have one for neighboring, like yeah. systemically. And full disclosure, I'm saying this is a law student. Oh, we, well, we should talk. Um, I have a lot to say on that one. That's kind of the, the, uh, the whole reason I got here. I'm going to condense it. Uh, www.thecommonrule.org, and I'll find you afterwards, is where I'm putting my thoughts on this. But the credentials, quote-unquote, that Tom read off at the beginning are actually the scars of, of my own suffering that I put myself through. The amount of things that I've tried to do have... Um, gone from what I thought would be building a great life and a name for myself to, to nearly destroying myself. And that is what busyness and our, the frenetic way of living does. I mean, we're in this, this, even as Christians, which is why I want us to pay attention so closely to our practices, because even as people who believe these things, we largely, I think, in our contemporary culture have assimilated to a way of living that forms us in the opposite kind of belief. There, so we have, the, we have to answer the deformation of practices with the reformation of practices so that we can actually match our patterns of living up to what we believe. So when I write about this stuff, I am actually interested in stuff like, do you look at your phone before you read the Bible in the morning? Is, is rhythmic prayer part of your daily schedule? Do you eat with other people? Lots of the things that I'm talking about. Do you make time to have a conversation with friends? I actually present... So I'm like, here's a sample daily schedule, because I think that is a holy thing to do. We're like trying to embody the gospel in daily life and say, how, how would we live otherwise if we want to not just talk about the gospel, but bear it out? Kind of like what God did when he sent his son to be the incarnate savior for us. So I would have, I'll have tons of, um, find me afterwards, tons of conversations about how I ruined my life in law school and how the Lord is slowly putting it back together for me. But it do, I just want to end with, it does matter that we reform our daily schedules. 
the cost of busyness will be our, our mission. We, we, won't, we won't love our neighbors unless we change our schedules. And so it's sort of like a point where we decide, are we going to follow Jesus in this or not? Am I going to take something off my calendar and put a new thing on or not? This, yeah, this is a great question. Um, this, is a, this is not a question either, but just something that brought me encouragement. Um, I think our temptation is to conflate our role with God's, and, and the distinction we need to make is what is our responsibility and what is God's, and I think providing a dinner, a potluck, a cookout, and just an environment where people can show up is our job, and we're thinking in the back of our minds, you know, somewhere I've got to work Jesus into this, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's true. I think we just have to show up and see what God does, and I yeah. think if we try to do, we try to force a fit, we're looking for trouble, and I think God does wild things. He may not happen right away. Maybe it's six months or a year, but... Our, our, our job is not to try to do God's job. You bet. And I think of the way I had the, the privilege of being, I think, well-trained as a missionary in China. And when we went there, it was, it was this tension that's not a tension if you think about who God is and what the gospel is. But it, it's a human tension because you're thinking, all right, whether or not these people see the light of Christ is really a matter of the Lord opening their eyes. But am I going to try to learn their language? You bet. Am I going to spend hours a day trying to figure out how do they talk and how do they think? Yeah, you bet I am. Uh, am I going to try to figure out how to put it so that they get it? And this is so fascinating, you all. In China, argument was what they wanted. Like, if you go to China, I, don't, I, I assume it's still the same. It's only been seven years since I left. But, like, they wanted apologetics. So make real, I want to make real clear, I'm not talking at all about, like, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. Or, like, there's not a good reason for our faith. You, you bet there is. There's great reasons. I'm saying, what language do the people here speak? As it turns out, it's quite different than the people in China. And I, and I think that's so good because we are, I am not saying this is going to unlock it. All that I'm saying is we got to try to learn their language and move, like, like you were saying, out of the fear that they, they don't like me into the care of they, like us, are like scared children. And I'm just watching my sons. What do you do when you feel like you're caught or you're scared? You start to reject help. You start to, you know, we're like that, all right? And God comes to us in that. What I'm saying is, let's go to our neighbors in that and see what the Lord does. Yeah. Um, Just one quick thing. You mentioned about the immigrant, and I just wanted to throw out there that reaching neighbors is is fantastic, but if every family in the church could find one immigrant family to reach out to and only one, that would be another, you know, big big thing to to put on that um, sort of limited time list because so many of them come here and never in five or ten years ever go inside of an American home. Um, So. Amen. Hey, Justin, thanks a lot for your presentation today. Um, I loved your point and comment about being a Christian first as opposed to being a Virginian or what have you. Um, What thoughts can you share with us about the practicality of that in the world of work? Because if I think about community, I think about physical neighbors, like who am I physically around a lot of my waking Mm -hmm. time? It's work colleagues. Mm -hmm. And for me... There's a sort of even another level of fear about trying to find the right, right, right way to engage. Um, that, you know, if I turn somebody off in my neighborhood, maybe I've lost a relationship, and 
that's too bad, but at least I've, I'm trying. But I feel like at work, the stakes are higher because if, I, if that happens at work, if it ultimately impacts kind of my ability to provide for my family, kind of the course of my work, you know, it's affecting people I'm responsible for in my life, not yeah. just me. So do you have some thoughts on that for us? Um, yeah. The two things that come to mind is I think there's, there's one part that's really easy and there's one part that's more complicated. The easy part is absolutely, that's the cost that we count when we follow Christ. And I, and I am thinking about the Chinese believers that I learned so much from. When they became Christians, they recognized, you don't do that to set up your run for political office. Like you, you, don't, you don't do that because you, you want to get promoted in this job. You do that because it's true, and it's worth reorienting everything in your life around. I remember Lauren worked with this little uh, Shanghai startup that was trying to get philanthropic money to the right places in China, and the, the, the government came knocking on their door because they, through their work, which was an incredible act of neighbor love, they wanted to say, let's get money to the right orphanage, not the one that's putting money in the founders' pockets. The, the government was like, we can take care of our people. We don't need your help. And they came. And, you know, Lauren, was, it was, there were tears shed over the, like, people got in trouble for doing great acts of neighbor love. People got in trouble for sharing the gospel work. That's the easy answer. I mean, that is the... I would be proud of any of you that got fired. <laughs> but, but you and I both know that there are great ways to share the gospel at work. Like We're not trying to get fired and shake things up. We're just trying to be honest about who we are. The harder answer, I think, Russ, is like there's a way of living, again, practices of living in the workplace that, that determine whether people are going to be interested in what we have to say or not. And again, in the writing and the thinking that I'm doing, because I've, again, ruined my life and I'm trying to put it back together in some ways, it's thinking really hard about what, is it, what does it look like to work at work like a gospel worker should, a, a way to work that um, doesn't exhaust yourself in the pursuit of fame in your workplace, but actually exhaust yourself in the pursuit of love and service? What does it look like to flip from upward mobility to servant leadership? I th there, if any, any one of you and I sat down, I'm sure we would really start to think about ways that our practices in the office or the home or the school, wherever you are carrying out your vocation, they're, they're either practices of light or they're habits of darkness. Um, and that's a real thing, and I think that part needs to be explored a lot. Um, and that's like, to me, I'm not sure. Like, I'm writing and thinking about this because I think as a culture we're trying to think better about that, and I don't think we've thought very hard about it yet. But I think there's a lot of soil to, to, to be tilled there, and I think it will be fertile when we do. Do I have time for one more, Tom, or? More, yep. Hey, Justin. Um, I, I love what, I'm over here. Where am I? Oh, <laughs> I know, in the corner. Sorry. I love what you're saying, and, and I hope to instill some of these practices, but at the same time, I'm thinking of the messages we're getting from culture, and I'm thinking of my Facebook feed that's filled with such untruths by my non-believing friends, and I'm just wondering where or when is the time to try, because it's being swallowed by the masses, I feel like. So where and when is the time to be able to maybe stem some of those untruths and maybe the time to speak up or how do that say? That's a hard one. Um, that's a hard one because that's true. It's really true that, you know, social media 
and what we call collectively the media is changing as fast as everything else is. And I mean, this new age of, I'm, I'm gonna try to avoid being unhelpfully controversial, but the new age of wondering like what fake news is or not and what, what real truth is or not is not a small problem. It's a, that's a really significant shift that we're undergoing because we're trying to, we're questioning each other constantly. Like, are you a liar? Um, I, and I don't know, I don't have to think about this one, but I, I do know that a lot of the, what I stake my life and arguments around now is this idea that the medium is the message. And that's a hyperbolic way of putting that the way we communicate is often as important as what is communicated. And so I am skeptical that like all the fake news on Facebook or the true news that we might try to put in its place um, is really gonna be the way that changes that person in the basement reading the screen. I'm not opposed to you know putting our messages out there. I'm just wondering how can we get in the basement? Or how can we get them out of the basement? So, so I'm thinking about a more enfleshed way of living that is attractive precisely because it's countercultural. It's attractive precisely because it's not using the same medium. We're proclaiming the exact message we want to post on the wall, but we're trying to get them to our potluck, or we're trying to get into their high school cafeteria. Or their, you, see, you see what I'm saying? I'm going to think about this because this is the best I got right now, but I think, it's, I think it is kind of the question of the hour right now in the culture we live in. And so wouldn't it be awesome if, as believers, we were good neighbors by helping people answer this question? That's great, Justin. Thank you. I have two invitations. Uh, one, uh, Jobs for Life is uh, in front of us, and we still are looking for mentors, for, especially for ladies. So if you are a lady, we, we need you. That's a great way of neighboring. And uh, here's another neighbor way of neighboring from Peggy. Uh, for, for a number of years, we've been, um, every season when it's the legislature's meeting, we've been signing up, if you want, for to pray for a particular senator. Um, I'm trying to pair up a person with each senator to pray for at home during the legislative session uh, uh, on a regular basis. and. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I'm going to be in the back, and anybody that wants to sign up, please do. I have a little more information to give you about each one. Thank you. Hey, let's uh, thank Justin uh, by showing our appreciation. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. So we'll see you all next week for the panel discussion. So please drink some coffee and eat the rest of the donuts. <laughs>